Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Business of Cyber. If you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. My name is Joey Vink, and what I do is I interview CEOs, founders, investors, and CISOs uh, to discuss the non-technical elements of the cybersecurity industry. Um, we have two new episodes that come out every other week, um, so if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow along. Now, my guest today is Jack Naglieri, who is the CEO at Panther. If you're not familiar with Panther, um, they're a modernized cloud-based SIM solution. And we start the conversation by covering the problems that Jack experienced at organizations like Yahoo and Airbnb that ultimately led to him founding Panther, and then detail the story of Panther thus far. They've grown incredibly quickly, um, going from 5 to 25 to 100 and now 200 employees in just a few short years. And along the way, raising about $140 million from investors like KOTU and Lightspeed. Jack's a very, very thoughtful leader. Um, and we go very in-depth into the lessons he's learned throughout the experience with Panther thus far. And then also really discuss how he manages his role and thinks about his role as the CEO and founder of a seminal cybersecurity business. So without further ado, I'm excited to hand it over to Jack Naglieri from Panther. Well, the party is off to a good start. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. Well, as a way to, uh, to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background and how you found your way into the world of cybersecurity? Sure. So my name is Jack Naglieri. I'm the founder and CEO of Panther. Um, I have been working in cyber for over 10 years. I started in college back when I was in George Mason and um, I studied cybersecurity. I studied networking, programming, kind of a little bit of everything. And funny enough, that's exactly what I needed as I got in my career. It was really just this eclectic mix of all these different, various technical skill sets. And eventually that led me to work at VeriSign, which led me to work at Yahoo which I spent uh, close to four years doing incident response and forensics and high-scale logging and SIM deployments and things like that, which led me to join Airbnb to do all of those similar things, but in the cloud. And then after spending close to three years at Airbnb, decided that I wanted to continue working on an open source project that we had started at Airbnb that was called StreamAlert. And I founded Panther, which is the continuation of that idea of using cloud native services to do detection and response. And it allows us to operate at a very high scale, much lower cost, have much more freedom in declaring detections and encourage higher fidelity of our alerts. So Panther's whole mission is to make security teams smarter and faster than attackers. And we can do that because we've built a SIM with a fully different architecture. And that allows us to really hone in on a lot of these struggles that security teams have had for many years that I felt internally while I did uh, my stints at Yahoo, Airbnb, VeriSign. So uh, that's the brief background. Um, I, I assume we'll go into all of them in detail. Uh, I'm yeah. based in San Francisco. Our, I'm in our headquarters right now. We have an office out in, in the, the south of market, if anyone's familiar with San Francisco. And um, the company is is grown quite a lot in the four years uh, since I founded it. So it's uh, it's obviously a very interesting time right now, given the market and given all those recent changes. 
Um, but you know, things are well, we're progressing and, um, I'm really, really excited about this next year. Yeah. Very good. Well, like you said, a lot to dig into with, uh, with Panther itself, but before we do, I'm, I'm curious to understand, uh, you know, you mentioned your time at George Mason and then, mm -hmm. you know, experiences sort of as an early professional at Yahoo and, and Airbnb. Yeah. Were, did you always plan to start your own company and go into entrepreneurship? Or was that something that, you know, was maybe a surprise? It wasn't really a surprise. I've always wanted to build stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I've, I've had that, had that intuition for some time. And I think it was a big reason why I got so into DevOps. When I was at Yahoo, uh, my whole job was deploying tools at scale. And the only way you could do that is by understanding infrastructure. So I went really deep into um, architecture of systems and um, CI/CD and uh, infrastructure and, and configuration as code and like a lot of these things are just so fascinating to me and this like very orchestrative framework I thought was just really really cool and um, it allowed us to have more security visibility ultimately at the end of the day and um, that sort of idea of tinkering with things always really stuck with me and then I became a developer and um, always just wanted to continue building things. So it wasn't, it wasn't a very unnatural step to become a founder, but I had zero experience. You know, I didn't go to like business school, like a lot of other founders, you know, went to Stanford and then they joined Y Combinator and then they, you know, got, they, they were, they were brought under the wing of like Paul Graham and like all those like really epic startup people. It was really just more of me getting connected with one investor who really helped me get on get on um, the right path forward and then really like that snowballed into a lot of other hires and bringing people into the company and really just me also learning a ton along the way so it wasn't by design it just happened and i'm really glad that it did yeah now one thing i'm always fascinated to uh better understand especially when i'm talking with you know ceos and founders like yourself who experience a problem directly, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into here throughout the course of the conversation. Um, but are, uh, sort of a first time founder or first time CEO and come from a more technical background. So when you sort of made that leap and, you know, as you've been operating Panther for the last four years, what have been, um, some of the more important learnings you've had or, or skills that you've had to develop as a CEO? It's a very loaded question. I can answer <laughs> my answer for the next hour. Yeah, it's a separate episode. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The, th the thing I continue to learn is that in a startup, every six months, something major changes. Hmm. You either have a brand new size that you're dealing with, like of the team. So for example, we had like five people up until pretty much like mid 2019. And then by the end of 2020, we had like 20 people. By the end of 2021, we had 100 people. So it's like, think about the progression, you know? Like just yeah. in terms of like managing the team, you know? Uh, one of the things that I learned, or I continue to learn as well, is empathy. Being very empathetic as a leader. And making sure, especially in a remote culture, making sure that you're making time to connect with people and really truly understand what drives them. We did an exercise recently that I thought was super helpful. Uh, I work with a performance coach and his whole, his whole um, thing is just making sure that 
he can guide people who are under very high stress, very high pressure and give them a system to always operate at their best. That's what performances are really all about. And we did an exercise where it was me and my executive team. We went around the room and it was like, okay, what's the one word that you would describe yourself operating at your best? And you get a lot of really interesting answers out of that. People were saying like, oh, it's me if I'm present or me if I'm strategic or me if I'm, you know, X, Y, Z, right? Uh, uplifting, you know, all these interesting things. And those key drivers are so important for a manager to understand. So you know how to put them in those positions to where they can operate at their best. So there's an area of empathy there that I think that I learned and continue to learn more and more about over time. Um, the other one is communication and transparency. We have a culture at Panther that is centered around one, just high frequency of updates from myself. So we do biweekly all hands and we sort of alternate the format between a longer form update from myself, my direct leaders, and then leaders within the company. Within the company. And then we have another version of this, which is kind of like a town hall where we'll bring an advisor or someone in the industry or uh, better yet, a customer to talk about what their experience with Panther has been. And that frequency is really helpful for keeping people on the same page. Uh, in between that as well, I do blog posts that are only internal and I'll take a topic and I'll write about it. And for example, I wrote one about what it means to be like the modern security stack. I wrote a tweet about this like this year and I went really deep into it internally where I was like, okay, you have API security, you have um, identity, you have all these various components and verticals within security. Let's understand what's going on and who's doing what and, and why these verticals exist. So blogs are a really great way to convey things like that and teach the company. And that is invaluable in my opinion. It was actually one of the things that I really loved about working at Airbnb was that Brian Chesky, the CEO and founder, co-founder, uh, he would send these Sunday emails that I always loved. They were very transparent. He would talk about an experience where he's like, oh, I just went, went and met this like retired like army general. And, you know, he told me this and, you know, it means that we just have to keep going. We have to make it through this thing. And, you know, it's always very like motivational and, and fun. And it gave me a view into his world of how he was thinking. And I try to do that same thing at Panther with the blog post. So connecting with people authentically, making sure that I have a high um, frequency of communication and just making sure that people are motivated and have fun. You know, it's, we're spending so much time together, so we have to make it really enjoyable, but we also need to focus on the mission and the outcomes because people want to work on things that are bigger than themselves. They want to know that their contributions have impact. So being able to communicate that and being able to, uh, again, have that appreciation, I think it really ties back to empathy again. It's like, how can you make sure that um, you're, you're really getting the most out of these relationships with people? So that's brief, a yeah. brief summary of some of the things I've learned. There's a whole slew of other things around raising money and, and being strategic and changing and evolving that as the market changes, as you change, as you're product the, like really everything is constantly evolving at least in the state that we're in right now which is like this sort of like phase of growth early growth however you want to describe it um and i i assume it's always like that like things are just dynamic in life you have to always be evolving and if you're not evolving you're just gonna you're not really gonna reach where you want to go yeah 
Well, lots to unpack with that. And you mentioned a few other things that, again, I'm sure we'll get into throughout the course of the the conversation. But just to ask a follow up question regarding uh, what you mentioned regarding the like leading with empathy and you know high frequency, high frequency, high impact internal communications. I love the concept of like the internal blog post to go deep on certain topics. How do you think about leading in kind of a remote first? environment. I know you mentioned, you know, you guys having an office in, in South San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but walk me through that, just how you think about creating that sort of culture in a predominantly remote world. I think about the things I just said predominantly around communication. That's the biggest mm-hmm. thing, right? If you're not on the same page with everyone and there isn't a frequent communication, then people are going to feel isolated. So having a method of doing that and then also just balancing the frequency of which you see people in person because like for example this year we did a company offsite in may and we we had like 100 people in one area and it was really helpful and we were out there for about three days so doing things like that like balancing this remote plus you know meet up a few times per year like is highly valuable. I'm in our office quite a lot just because I live in San Francisco and my COO also comes in pretty much every day with me. And we have a handful of people who come in like once or twice a week. And it's just a, it's a space where we can all convene, but I don't mandate the company to come in any really at all. Like, even if you live in San Francisco, you can work from home if you want. Everyone has different preferences. Everyone has different uh, family needs, things like that. And I think the flexibility of remote work is is actually kind of advantageous in a lot of ways. Um, personally, I feel that I can be an effective CEO in the office or across the country in New York or wherever I need to be at that time. And when you establish these paradigms of remote work around a really good documentation, really good written culture, um, really good communication culture. So we use like Slack and Signal and things like that. Um, and we heavily, heavily use Notion. We use Notion an intense amount. I use Notion. I'm like a power user in Notion. I love it. And it's just a lot. It's just such an easy way for me to share ideas with people. I'll get some inspiration. I'll put it in a note. I'll share it to someone and be like, Hey, you know, this thing we were talking about the other day, I had these follow-up thoughts. Like, tell me what you think, like leave some comments. Right. Very similar to the blogging idea. The blogging idea is more of like, Hey, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And as long as you can communicate those things very clearly, then people are brought along with you. And no matter where they are, if they're, you know, at home, if they're on a plane, if they're uh, doing whatever, they can just check their phones. They can get an update and understand that, hey, the company's moving in this direction. And, you know, we're hearing from various leaders in the company as to why. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really all about communication. You have to have good communication and you have to be very intentional about it. You have to be intentional about the frequency of that communication and what you're saying when you're giving those updates. And, um, how people are being brought, or lo- brought along with the progression of the company. Now, I'd love to pivot a little bit um, and spend some time talking a little bit more about uh, the company itself, the product, and mm-hmm. the problem that you guys are, are working to solve in the market. Um, I know you've, you've spoken extensively about sort of the origin story, but just to set you know a little bit of context for the audience here, do you mind taking us back to... Uh, your time at Yahoo and Airbnb. And I know you touched on it in your introduction at the beginning of the call, um, but maybe highlight sort of some of the things you saw that led to you creating StreamAlert and then subsequently Panther. 
Yeah, it's a good question. Yahoo was all about scale. You know, they had over a billion users and it was a company that was around for, you know, 20 plus years. So the challenges at Yahoo were so unique, but they all revolved around this idea of, can we get signal from hundreds of thousands of machines? It's a very unique problem that maybe only a handful of companies have in the world because not many can operate at that scale. So the, so what I learned at Yahoo was one, it's very difficult to get this data at all, even just getting it sent, let alone like routed and stored. And then the second part of that is, is usability of that data over time. So it really shined a light on this idea that in order for security teams at this massive scale to operate, you needed really strong foundations of data engineering and you needed big data platforms. So at the time, Yahoo, I think, had something really uh, connected with um, Hadoop. They were a massive Hadoop shop. I believe either the founders of Hadoop came from Yahoo uh, or started in Yahoo and then they open sourced it. I can't quite recall. But we had this massive Hadoop cluster and, and that was like earlier days of, of big data. So that was the first realization is we need big data if we're going to do this, uh, especially as we go to the cloud because cloud is just so noisy and always will be. But at the scale of enterprise, we're typically looking very, very in-depth in one particular area. And the way that I like to think about it is as companies are progressing the maturity of their security program, they typically start with, with, um, with breadth. So they're saying, okay, I want the SaaS logs and I want my cloud logs and I want my endpoint logs. But as you progress, you start to get a lot more depth in those things as well. So for an example, like network monitoring, you typically don't see like an SMB caring about network monitoring because it's highly specialized and typically they don't have the requirement to collect it. But in highly regulated environments where there's like credit card processing and things like that, you just need more accountability. So having that network data can be very valuable. But again, this goes back to the problem of you need big data to actually handle this at scale. Because a lot of the solutions that we had to our disposal were really just logging platforms that started off solving operational problems. And with security, because we have, to, we have the requirement to operate at a very, very high scale, those systems really didn't work for a number of reasons. They just weren't, first of all, they weren't really designed for that scale. So it's like trying to drive a Formula One race with like a streetcar. It's like, it's not really going to work. Uh, you're going to have a lot of problems. Um, you're not really designed to go around the track in that way. And, you know, you're going to take a turn at 70 miles an hour and you're going to flip over. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, those challenges were, were ubiquitous. So that was, that was number one. And then at, at Airbnb, it was a whole different world because Airbnb was fully built in the cloud. Yahoo had been around since the early 2000s. And honestly, even probably before that, I wonder if they were even founded in the 90s. I can't remember. But very different worlds when you're just a full-on AWS shop. And I didn't really know anything about AWS when I started or the cloud. It was my first time, but I, I, what I did know really well was how to deploy security tools at a massive scale and the things to look out for when you do that, all the different caveats. And I think the, the chef cookbook that I wrote for OS Query is probably still in use in a lot of environments. Um, I spent a lot of time on it and I battle tested it both at Yahoo and at Airbnb. So it worked really well. Uh, but operating in the cloud is a fully different game. And because developers have so much access to the cloud, they have the ability to spin up and spin down resources. They can 
they can do things that can cause security issues, unfortunately, but this is all for the purpose of being able to move fast as a business. So that's really what's been happening in the last 10 years. You've seen these businesses just hyper grow because they're able to build products very quickly, iterate them, iterate on them as quickly, and then just find a wedge in the market and then just explode. So we've seen that a lot. Um, a lot of our customers actually fit that profile as well. So for example, like Coinbase um, is, is a user and HubSpot and like a handful of others kind of like those two. And they just had this enormous growth. And that's sort of the second learning is you have to be prepared to use services that can elastically scale and hopefully that are also cloud-based. Uh, so you're not having to deal with the ops burden because we in the past what we had was We'd have these clusters of machines and then we're like, oh, we want to onboard syslog data. It's like, okay, it's going to take a month to figure out how to auto scale all this. Or you, you may not even have auto scaling. You might have a dashboard that's like, hey, you're running out of, uh, out of CPU memory and it's falling behind in processing or it's dropping data or, you know, these really horrible things. And then you have to worry about the storage of that data and it's just a nightmare. So we, we at Airbnb, after living in that world for many years inside of other big companies, like, my boss had come from Facebook and one of our peers had come from um, other relevant tech companies kind of like this. And we've all cut our teeth in working at this very high scale. And we're like, we don't really want to do, you know, big vendor again. We want to build something that's cloud-based. And our whole thing was, if we build something cloud-based, we can operate at a super high scale with a very small team. And that's effectively what we see in industry today. We see that there's a huge amount of security jobs that are vacant and there just aren't enough people to do this job. And everyone, all the security vendors are like, false positives are so high. You know, there's not enough people. We have to automate. Everyone's getting burned out, you know? Well, yeah, they're getting burned out because we didn't, we didn't adapt with the times. And we did StreamAlert as a kind of a proof of concept to show that, hey, you don't have to use big vendor one, two, and three. To do this, you can use this set of scripts and Lambda functions and, and you can process two terabytes of data per day, which previously was kind of unthinkable, uh, let alone uh, viable for most teams because they didn't, one, have the expertise or two, have the ability to truly like build this themselves. And every time people tell me like, oh, we're, we're not going to buy you, we're just going to build this. And I'm like, okay, I'll see you in a year when you fail at building it because it's, it's so hard to build and you have to know so many things. Um, I don't recommend it. Like, like don't try to build your own sim. You're gonna you're gonna have such a bad time. It's it's a really it's really hard tech to build because you have to you have to be good at three core things. You have to be good at data pipelines and data ingestion. You have to be good at high scale analysis of that data. And then you have to be really good at combing over it uh, in the data lake or wherever it ends up living and, and answering questions about an incident. And those three three things all together, you could you could work on for five plus years with teams. I mean, honestly, that's, I know this cause I'm doing it right. It's like, I've seen it so many times. Um, yeah. so if anyone's a security security leader thinking about building a SIM, like, please don't do it. You're going to have a bad time. Um, and it's very, very difficult. Um, so yeah, it's really the culmination of all those learnings. It's many years of learnings. It's many years of mistakes. Um, and, and knowing what works and what doesn't at this high scale and taking all those learnings and putting it into Panther. And the beauty is that I've hired a team of people from all other walks of life as well in security. So my handful of my early employees were from Amazon. 
And they built systems that were like 100x scalable than what Streamlord could achieve. And they really built the architectural foundation of Panther. So it's the reason that, you know, two years ago, I did a demo with Snowflake and we fed 50 terabytes of data through Panther in a day, two years ago. So it's, it's pretty bulletproof in terms of the core data processing pipelines. Of course, there's a lot of edge cases. Like we've seen uh, the, the beauty with our, our position is we're able to see into a lot of other uh, use cases and we're able to see like what scale people are operating on and it wide, wildly varies. We see people like exploding in one particular use case that we've never seen before and then like having to go in tune and making sure that stays reliable. But um, the core processing of like dump data in an S3 bucket, get it into Panther, get it through, whether it's like network logs, CloudTrail logs, et cetera, uh, or it could be like system logs, really whatever you have. Um, that core pipeline is just so well matured and uh, it just takes a lot of effort to get there. Uh, and then when we open source stream alert, we saw that adoption uh, happen in a lot of other Silicon Valley companies as well. We got more learnings there, but I was just really excited to keep working on that problem. And because I had seen so much success in that project, I just had so much inspiration. I was like, okay, this could be so much better. It could be a UI-based solution because everything in Streamlit was command line. And we had issues with our analysts not being able to really commit and change things because it was all GitHub oriented. So Panther's whole first thing was like, what if we put a UI on top of this thing? And we did that. And then, you know, we just kept building and developing since then. Now what you can do is we effectively have an IDE. You can write Python code, you can ship it, and then it gets put into this event-based, highly scalable processing pipeline kind of in the background for you. So mm -hmm. it's quite sophisticated in, in the technology and it's extremely, extremely scalable. And, and it addresses a lot of issues we've had with SIM in the past. So uh, th that was kind of like the snowball into Panther. And um, we've done a lot. We've done a lot since then and are going to continue to do so much more in the future. Yeah. Knowing uh, everything you know now, right? And, and keeping in mind, right, all the success and growth that you guys have had over the last four mm -hmm. years, what are some things that you would do differently if you were restarting Panther today? Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, a lot of things. And I'm continually learning. I think the first one is just find that first wedge and just focus like intensely into it. The problem inherently with SIM, especially in the enterprise, is that if you're a new SIM vendor and you go to a security team and you're like, hey, I'm a new SIM vendor, we do this. And they're like, oh, well, we need these 100 features or else we can't use your SIM. Super daunting, right? So what ends yeah. up happening is those new SIM vendors go and build all those things. But in order for get in in order for companies to get really true like market penetration and, and, and high growth, you have to really win in one particular area. But SIM naturally pushes companies to actually build in multiple areas, right? So it's like, what is the thing? What's the thing in SIM that's going to be the most impactful? Like, go do that. I think like that's one thing I would think about differently next time. Or if I, I mean, I don't think I'm going to build another SIM company after Panther, but. Uh, <laughs> That's like one learning I think about a lot is just like, and just in generally in life, it's like you have to focus on one thing if you really want to be great at it. And I think it's the innovator's dilemma, right? You have to, you have to take uh, user feedback with a grain of salt because sometimes they steer you in the wrong direction. 
was another subject I was uh, curious to get your thoughts on and just kind of getting ready for our interview over the last week or so um, and hearing, you know, you share examples like this on, on other podcasts and other interviews you've been a part of um, sort of how you view uh, the, specifically the concept of crossing the chasm where, you know, with anything that's innovative, there's going to be early adopters who are excited and open to something new. And then there's the mainstream market, right? And a gap you have to cross to, to get to them. So can you speak to, you know, how you experienced that concept of crossing the chasm, especially with, you know, disrupting uh, an existing category like the sim space? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, predominantly on the techno technology or tech technology enthusiast side, it's been really fascinating to see what people are drawn to and why, right? And then compare that to typical detection and response team. And it really, it's, it's so fascinating. Like I'm just trying to piece together like the learnings that I've had so far. Um, you just have to be very careful about um, why people are buying and you have to really make sure that you're qualifying people even in the early days uh, to make sure they're, they'll be successful in your product. Because a lot of people want a better, faster sim, but they may not be able to actually use what we had built in the in the product, you know, maybe a year or two ago, and it was like super primitive. But now, as we've built things to be a little easier, um, we've seen how the the tech enthusiasts behave um, and the things that they ask, and then we try to cater to that. Um, but crossing the chasm is is a very difficult thing to do, and and I think that. Um, we're still in the process of getting across the chasm. I can't speak to the success story yet of that, right? Because crossing the chasm into the mainstream of SIM is a, you know, five, six, six billion dollar market. You know, it's massive. Right. And, um, and, and people are all in different maturity levels of that process. So, for example, in the tech enthusiasts in SIM, they're probably more highly sophisticated teams because they understand that what we've built, which is around this concept of detection as code and having to write Python scripts to analyze your data, um, albeit it's simple Python, it's nothing that's overly complicated. Um, and this is kind of the beauty of Python. You can do as much or as little as you want. You can have a rule, it's like field equals value, you know, but in, in, in a standard language, which is awesome. But in order to really like meet people where they are, you have to make sure that when you're crossing, you're building for that particular pragmatist and the pragmatists don't want to debug products. They want something that's like highly mature in a specific area and is a huge productivity improvement for what they're doing. And what's the huge productivity improvement in security? It's being able to actually understand what the data is telling you and being able to um, go from logs to understanding behaviors. That's a huge part of it. And that's where a lot of people get hung up, either because they don't have time, they don't have the skill set, uh, or they're overwhelmed. So that's one of the biggest problems that I don't think anyone's truly solved yet. We're certainly making a lot of great progress to solving that, by the way, with things like detection as code and having much more uh, reliability and faith that what we're shipping is going to produce the desired effect. And that's always the goal. We want to make sure that we're being efficient with teams. So in order for us to, to move into that, we have to find that market of people who see the value in the things like detection as code 
and and find that like broader wedge that then allows us to go rapidly and get the network effects there. So it's it's in progress, right? Like our company's still sure. fairly young. If you think about it, right? We've only been in the market for a few years. Um, so we're still very much in that tech enthusiast phase. Um, but we have a lot of things cooking up for next year that I'm very excited about. Yeah, and cool. it does address a lot of what we're talking about with like crossing the chasm. Um, yeah. It's such a fascinating book, by the way. Have you ever read Good to Great? Uh, I have. Yeah. It's very yeah. adjacent to crossing the chasm because it talks yeah. about like the hedgehog principle, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. obviously it talks about level five leadership and a lot of other amazing concepts. That's like, honestly, one of my favorite business books ever. It's so good. Yeah. So within that, I'm curious to get a little bit more operationally focused, especially on go to market um, and mm-hmm. how, you know, through the lens of the concept of crossing the chasm that's influenced how you guys think about it. Like you mentioned Coinbase as a, a sample customer. I know on the interview you did with uh, with Thomas from Times, right? You mentioned Coinbase and I think Dropbox and another company like yeah, that, Dropbox. right? Yeah. Um, so how, how do you guys think about go-to-market uh, from a customer acquisition standpoint? Are you targeting more sort of cloud-native businesses um, or, mm-hmm. or something else? For sure, yeah. yeah. Companies born in the cloud is a primary target because they're feeling a lot of the problems that our product addresses. It could also be enterprises operating at scale too, because they're also feeling a different version of that problem. But cloud native companies going from zero to one is predominantly what we're looking for. Right? We're looking for yeah. the people who are growing their security team and they're like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with any of this log data. And I've built a couple of these like cobbled pipelines together, but uh, it's not reliable. It's not working anymore, et cetera. So we think about that regard. And honestly, a lot of people have built event-based analysis systems like Panther. And I always try to find those people and be like, hey, listen, like, I know that you love this this pipeline. Like, we've just spent the last three, four years building this. Um, you can really take what we've built and you can build on top of it as well by using detection as code. So you can save yourself a lot of pain and time and really just focus on the security work that you're here to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really broadly, like, you have to you have to target those practitioners that are doing the job and you have to connect with them authentically. And that's, this is a big reason why I like to write on my Substack. And my Substack is really around this idea of just talking about like things practitioners care about and talking about um, topics that would be useful for them to wrap their heads around. Like I've had the opportunity just to spend a lot of time thinking aside from doing active security work. And in that I've just unpacked a lot of concepts like, false positives. Like why do false positives happen? Like that was the last blog I wrote. And then there was one that was all about testing detections. There was one that was all about the various types of logging and people like asked me to go deeper into that, that concept as well. Um, I have a whole bunch of topics around response and understanding how to do uh, investigations and what the thought process is and how it really gets um, like systematized and thinking about like, Okay, we start here, then we go here, then we go here, then we go here. Like, how are we answering these questions? And um, I think that can be really helpful as a company that's trying to solve a big problem to to just become a little bit more known. I try not to make my top my content highly Panther specific, and I think that if I do that, I'll be very transparent about it and be like, "Hey, this is a blog post all about how to get really clever with detection as code, and here's here's a few techniques that I personally think are very helpful." And you know, I think the education piece is so needed because security is one of those things that it's highly tribal. 
And you don't really learn how to do instant response until you get punched in the face by an attacker. And it's like, it's, it's hard, you know, and a lot of, a lot of teams never even experience a breach for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And they may not be a target, but, you know, I've worked in, I've worked in environments where we were getting breached all the time, or we were, you know, dealing with incidents, I should say, all the time. It may not be a breach, but there was always incidents kind of just happening, right? It was just a big moving target. And then I've been in other environments where it just really didn't really happen that often or at all. So it highly, highly varies. Yeah. So anything that I can do to help with that on a tools or education side is really the way that I try to connect with the market. And, and especially with the people who are in the target market we're going after, just to tell them like, hey, we, we, we have a solution to your problem. Like you don't have to keep building this thing. You don't have to keep struggling with it. We're here to help. And I think going back to empathy and connecting with people, it's important to make that very clear. And because I come from that background, it's a little bit easier for me to connect with people and just be more authentic versus a vendor telling them like, we're going to defeat every attack ever. It's like, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anyone should claim that, you know, it's yeah. just not, uh, it's not, it's not possible. You know, you can't just stop everything, but yeah. you can equip people and you can make them faster and you can make them smarter and you can make them better over time. And that's the most sustainable thing that you can do as a vendor. You can, you can give them the tools to be better and, and evolve over time. And that's really what motivates me to do my job a lot. Cool. I know related to this topic, one of the other uh, problems that, um, you know, I know you experienced at, at Yahoo and, and Airbnb was related to uh, sort of how these tools were priced as well. And it was just inscalable and um, not almost punitive in a way, right? Where you just couldn't use it um, in, in, in the way that was actually being commanded and, and necessary. So I'm curious when you think about, you know, being empathetic, not just as a leader, but to your customers and to the market as well, how do you think about pricing? I know there's a, a usage-based pricing model, but, but walk me through that, not just the mechanics, but, you know, from a more principles level, how you guys think about it. Ultimately, the way I think about it is we want people to feel incentivized to use Panther and the the model we have today is is actually like log volume based so it's not quite consumption based yet i would like to get to that point um but it's a thing we continue to investigate the there's problems with both if you tell someone oh we're log ingest based or like oh i don't like that like oh well then now we're consumption based yeah i don't like that either it's not predictable <laughs> so it's like anything you pick someone's not gonna like it uh that's just kind of the reality I think the important thing is if your cost basis allows people to operate at scale and retain data at scale, then you're making people happy. So if you can build a model around that, and this is specifically for SIM, obviously, if you can build a model around that, then people will generally be happy. The way that we keep people happy today is we we use a similar model that everyone knows, which is log, ingest, log ingestion. And then we just have a very low um, unit cost because we're cloud-based and we have the ability to do that, which is awesome. So, yeah, ideally, I get to a place where, you know, the, the, the beauty, the beautiful pricing models, like everything's consumption based, everything's value based. Right. Yeah. And then there's a nice packaging. And then, like, you know, we all like ride into the sunset together. Uh, but it's like really, it can be really difficult to find something like ubiquitous that people um, can get behind quickly. Right. Speed's important. You know, we don't want to we don't want deals to take multiple months just because it's hard to estimate the cost. 
for sure. Um, we can give people a pretty good sense based on what we know today. Um, cool. But it's going to always evolve over time. Um, we actually just launched a, uh, a free trial as well, Panther. And that's kind of our first foray into doing things like this, like consumption-based models. So you get um, a certain amount of, of logs you can feed through uh, with the trial. It's like time-based and, and log-based. What was your uh, sort of trial or you know proof of value type experience before the, the free trial? Uh, it was really the same. You just had someone guiding you. You had yeah. like a CSM or uh, someone in our customer success team would just sit with you and make sure that you can get your data in, you can write some detections, you can do searches, you know, you can do the the primitive things you need to. And um, we've seen, uh, we've actually seen a lot of uh, signups with the trial, which has been awesome. And it's really great data for us to understand where people are getting stuck or people are getting value. And it's just it's all instrumented and it's it's very, very helpful and useful. And it's cool because practitioners can get into the product without talking to a salesperson and they can try it out and see it for themselves. And I think that's one of the biggest ways that we can show value. I mean, you have to let the product talk, you know? Yeah. And the free trial is just, uh, it's table stakes at this point. So I felt really strongly about getting it out there. Yeah, cool. One thing you mentioned and sort of a, a final topic before we move into the, the uh, rapid fire round, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about sort of how you're thinking about or maybe what changes you've made, if any, uh, as a result of sort of the operating environment right now. So, you know, given what the operating changes environment? Of, yeah, what do you mean? No, nobody's talking what's about it. So you probably didn't see this it? question coming. Yeah. <laughs> what's that? Yeah, I mean, exactly. uh, it's definitely taking a look at your capital efficiency. And the, the, I mean, the whole market got completely flipped on its head. You know, you saw these massive rounds from companies that were still fairly early in terms of their maturity. And, you know, people were raising, you know, two to three hundred million dollars as like a series B. And you're just like, what in the world? Yeah. Um, and obviously we're, we're included in that, right? Like we raised 120 million about a year ago. And now the game is flipped into how can you get to a point where your burn is your burn multiple is low your revenue multiple is more in line with the public markets and uh, the private market valuations are always higher than what you're seeing in the public markets. But now they're start, they've started to compress significantly. And obviously they all dropped by like, what, like 50 plus percent. Uh, the multiples went down so much. It was like 30X in the public markets and now it's like, what, like five to 10? It's like yeah. pretty normal. So it's a very, very significant drop. Um, so now the name of the game is really uh, how do you make sure that you're operating capital efficient and you're making sure that you can weather through the uncertainty that's going to exist in the market for the next few years. So it's a very different game. It's not growth at all costs. It's, it's thoughtful growth. It's systematic growth. It's being very intentional about where you spend your money. And we, we've been blessed and not, you know, not needing to do like a, a significant layoff. Um, but I'm definitely taking a look at everything in the company and saying, okay, where can we optimize? Like SaaS spend, for example, what tools are we not using anymore? Let's get rid of it. It could be around, uh, you know, how many roles were we planning on hiring? All right, let's freeze. Let's just stop. Let's stop and use the team we have and really just like hunker and focus and build. So it's different. It's definitely different. It's not where I thought I would be a year later, but 
we've been reacting to it well. And I luckily hired a, a VP of finance a year ago. And that's honestly been a godsend. If I didn't have him, it would have been way more difficult um, because we, we previously relied on external accounting and, and finance services, but he's really come in and made such a huge difference in, in improving our operating model, but also just being able to visualize all of the spend and seeing where it goes. You'd be surprised what happens in a, in a 150 plus person company. People just like buy things because they say they need it and then it doesn't get used. And, you know, same thing with like AWS accounts. And I'm sure like anyone who runs a, a very large AWS infrastructure knows this as well, that there's just a lot of waste in general. So it's a trade-off, right? It's like, do you want to spend your time optimizing your spend or do you want to spend time just like building and growing your company? It's like the, it's like the existential problem. And yeah. both things can be bad. You know, companies that are too conservative with spending money and growing have problems and then companies that are burning too much have problems. So you want to be somewhere in the, in the middle where you're growing responsibly. How has your internal communication evolved or changed over that same period of time? Like bringing it back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about high frequency communication, internal blogs, yeah. et cetera. How's that like tone changed? It's getting a lot more frequent, but the thing is, is you can't always have bad, you can't always have bad news. You know, you, you have to, you have to lighten it up sometimes, you know, otherwise if you're just always in war mode, people just get burned out. Right. So it's, you gotta control, you gotta control the, the emotion in the company. And the, one of the th most important things I've learned is like the way that I show up is the way that everyone feels. So if I show up and I'm like super tense and I'm like really stressed out, people are going to be worried. Right. But if I am calm and I'm saying, Hey, the market's changed a lot. We have to change with it. This is how we're going to do it. People feel way more comfortable and transparency is always something I've tried to do a good job at as a CEO. So even pe if people ask me hard questions, I always address it head on. I don't avoid them. And I think that builds a lot of goodwill and a lot of good trust. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jack, I'd love to uh, step into the quick fire round. Um, so basic premise uh, is I ask you a few quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Let's do it. I'm ready. Yeah, cool. All right. Bring it on. First, First one, you already partially answered, so it may be repetitive, but if there's something else that comes to mind, feel free to change it. But first one sure. is what's your favorite book? You mentioned Crossing the Chasm. You oh, mentioned man. Good and Great. I'll say Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I love that book so much. And it, it was so foundational for me as, a, as an early founder. Yeah, cool. If you could uh, change one thing about the cyber industry, what would it be? Hmm... I would say less, less vendors, higher quality. I like it. Like less vendors, higher quality products. Yeah. Who's, snake oil. who's someone that's been uh, a, a profound, you know, mentor or coach or advisor for you uh, as you've, you know, become a CEO here for the first time. I named my, uh, my initial board member slash guy who helped incubate Panther. His name is Shvet. He was, uh, still is a VC at this early stage firm called S28 Capital. Cool. And uh, he's definitely been the one that's guided me throughout the journey and all the different phases. Yeah. I know this is rapid you... fire. I'm trying not to, not, try not to yeah. answer too long. No, it's okay. 60 seconds or so is, is more than, okay, more than cool. sufficient. Um, how, how would you describe your leadership style? 
Mm. Um, I, uh, it's using a lot of the words I used before. Transparent, mm-hmm. empathetic, um, very biased to action. But also, I'm very analytical as well. But um, yeah, I think that more or less covers it without me going to, into detail into all of them. Yeah, cool. And uh, last one, if you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20-year-old self, uh, what advice would you give him? Mm, my 20-year-old self. That was me pre-graduation. Mm, that's such a hard question. There's so many things I would tell. Um, and I would, I would say so many things. I don't know. I've learned so much this year. I think uh, it would be something health oriented. I think it would be something personally oriented. Um, I don't know if there's like one particular thing I would do. Right. I think, yeah, I'm a big believer in this idea of like, you kind of have to learn on your own path. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually asked someone a similar question once I was like, what's a piece of advice you would give? And she was like, I don't give advice. Like people should learn how to live the best life on their own. And I always mm-hmm. thought that was such a cool answer. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I've learned a lot about like mental, mental grit this year. And no matter how hard the world pushes at me, it's my job to not let it affect me at the same rate. So it, it would be more around like stay calm, right? It's like stay calm, stay focused. You can get, actually, you know what? This is what I would say. I would say that life's a self-fulfilling prophecy and if you believe that something will happen a certain way, it will happen, good or bad. If you if you are like, oh man, I'm super nervous. I don't I don't know if I'm going to do well. You're probably not going to do very well. But if you're like, yeah. I've been training for this thing for six months. I'm ready. Let's do it. Then you're going to enter that with so much more confidence, and you're going to have a better outcome because you you believe in your abilities. So I would I would actually say that principle of life's a self fulfilling prophecy. So whatever energy that you're creating, whatever narrative that you're telling yourself is going to come true, good or bad. And I've actually seen that play out so many times. You know, yeah. I was saying Love for it. many years, like, I want to have a company. I want to build a company. You know, I want to do, I want to do it. And I had no idea how. And then here we are, right? You're interviewing me about my company. Right. You know, I've always wanted to start running. You know, I've always been like, oh, it'd be great to be like the, you know, wake up at 5 a.m., like have a workout, you know, before work you know, drink green tea, you know, just like these things that people, uh, people who are like high performers and people who are under high stress, you typically see that same routine very often. And here we are, like, we didn't talk anything about health, but, um, I'm very, very health oriented and I do a lot to maintain my physical and mental health because it's so important for this job. This job is very mentally and physically demanding. So there's those elements, but being a, having a clear vision of where you're going is so important because you're not going to ever get there. And there's also this other analogy I've heard, which is like, if you're imagining like you're driving a car and if you're focusing on not hitting the wall versus like focusing on the road ahead of you, you're probably going to hit the wall because you're, you're just intensely focusing on it. So it's like, focus on the road, think about what's next and just go like, get there, you know, visualize and, and execute. Like that's the most important thing that anyone can apply in, in any parts of their life. I know I said that was the last question, but uh, you said something I'm interested in. So 
what the hell one more. Yeah. Um, tell me about Let's your, you, you mentioned health being a, a huge focus, both physical and, and mental. What's, uh, what's kind of your routine? And again, I know that's a big question, but oh, what are the questions? Yeah. What's your routine? Yeah. So, uh, I get up between five thirty and six every day and I'll like get up, I'll, I'll go do some stretches. I'll stretch my lower body. I'll stretch like my, my, my back because your spine is very tight in the morning. I'll drink like two big glasses of water. I drink like a bunch of water throughout the day. Uh, and then I'll either, depending on what I'm doing that morning for a workout, um, I usually t- tend to start my days with workouts. So if I'm doing like heavier weightlifting, I'll eat like snack before I go do that. Cause I need energy. Uh, if I'm going to like deadlift 300 pounds, like I need, I need yeah. something in me to do that. Uh, this morning, for example, I just did a hit workout in my, my apartment. Uh, but it's always starting with some movement, right? Some type of movement, whether it's like, even if it's a rest day, I'll go for a walk. Um, you know, San Francisco is a beautiful city to walk through. Uh, so I'll try to walk for like 20 ish minutes. I'll try to work out for 30 to 60 minutes. Um, I don't know why I'm saying I try I, I, That's actually what I do. <laughs> uh, come back, have breakfast and then get ready, come to the office, you know, have, have some caffeine coffee, et cetera. Um, but the way I eat is also really important. So, um, I'm predominantly plant-based. I gave up eating meat about a year and a half ago, and that's made a massive difference in in my health. Um, I've had a lot of, I've struggled with a lot of health issues in the past that I've seemingly gotten through in a lot of different ways. And diet is such a important part of that. So, uh, I eat plant-based, um, I try to eat paleo as well. So I try to cut out all added sugar. I try not to have, uh, I actually don't really have milk in my diet at all or dairy. I cut it, I cut it out like 95%. So I very plant-based. Um, I think the thing I'll flex on is like salmon. That's basically yeah. it. And, um, just try to be cognizant about how often I'm eating. Uh, try to keep it like whole foods, things like that. So, um, and then there's like mental health elements. So there's like meditation, there's journaling, there's this idea of like having a blueprint for how you want to operate. And I've spent a lot of time writing those things out. And again, you have to embody this identity you want to be, right? If you want to become great at running, you have to start doing running, right? Like you, you have to tell yourself, I'm becoming a great runner and you have to just do those things. So there's a, there's a really strong mental game around improving yourself. That again, has to do with visualizing those things that you want and then taking the actions to do it every day. And health is like that. Like any, any sort of change, uh, that's going to occur in a human. It literally just takes time, right? Everyone's always like, Oh, it takes two weeks for a habit to fit in. Um, and really like set in, uh, I've spent many months doing these things, you know, actually almost years now at this point, like fitness and health, physical health has been a thing in my life. Uh, for a very long time. And it can actually help with a lot of mental health things like anxiety and depression and stress relief. You know, moving your body is so important. Uh, one of my coaches, he always says, uh, motion moves emotion. And yeah. I love that so much. And it's like, if you're feeling like a little tired or stressed. Like you can just like do intense breathing. You can like get up and walk around. You can do some squats. You can just like, just move your body. Like you'll feel better. And, um, those things are so important when you're doing anything that's high stress. If you have a high stress situation at home, if you're in a high stress work environment, I mean, there's just a lot of bad news lately, right? There's just a lot of crazy stuff happening in the world. You got to be able to like disconnect and recharge and, and, and make sure that you're checking in with yourself. But 
also being ambitious and, and, and always evolving. And that's always been something that's very central and core to who I am and how I want my company to be as well. I want my company to always evolve as well. And um, being high performance takes a lot of energy, but it has a really nice outcome. And the outcome is that you do something that's important to you and you make a difference either in your own life or others or both. And it's, uh, it's a good blueprint to operate. So I'm continually learning and evolving it, but it's gotten pretty refined at this point. Yeah. Cool. No, I, I love that. And I think it's an amazing way to wrap it up. Um, I'm really happy to hear about, uh, and see sort of the, you know, the evolution in, in business where I think people are starting to be more communicative and talk about how investing and focusing on your personal health, right? Mental health, physical health, et cetera, can make you a better leader, a better manager, a better executive, um, and just all around like a happier person. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about that and uh, telling us a little bit about your your routine. Yeah. I mean, as a founder, if you burn out, you're 0% effective. Yeah. Right. So it's like people are putting a lot of faith in in me, right? And I have to take care of myself for those other people. That's really what it's about. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jack, I know we're up on time, so uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the, uh, the conversation. So thank you for the time today uh, and for the opportunity to meet. Of course. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate it.